0: Well, uh, this morning is going to be a little bit different than some of the sermons and and work that we normally do on Sunday mornings. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And uh, let's be praying about that and paying attention to that, encouraging people who are involved with those kinds of ministries. And we have some of those magnificent ministries even here in Colorado Springs. So we're going to take today and and we're going to focus on one particular topic. We're going to deal with a biblical view on human sexuality. Now, I consider this a matter of sanctity of human life because of how important it is for the Christian church to be aware of what's going on around us and not just be aware in terms of frustration or confusion, but to be aware of it in terms of, well, how should we respond as Christians? How should we view this as Christians? How should we treat this as Christians? And so that's what we're going to spend some time doing this morning. That's why the slightly different setup. Uh, the notes that uh, we have given you guys are, are the slides that people typically ask me about when I give this presentation. I've had the chance to do this at a conference, in a minister's retreat, in another church, and so forth. And, and what you have in those notes are some of the resources and stats and data that we'll get to a little bit later on. Next week Um, We go back to uh, what is our fairly normal pattern, and we're going to be starting a series through the book of Hebrews beginning next Sunday. So we're excited about that. You may even want to spend some time reading ahead, getting getting ready for the book of Hebrews. But as we begin, friends, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we turn our hearts and minds and, and eyes to your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that He has done for us. We are this morning children of God, followers of Jesus Christ, and I pray, Lord, that that kind of commitment as we talk about this topic this morning would reach into every corner of our belief system, every corner of our interaction with those around us that we know and love, our interaction with the rest of our community, Heavenly Father, into a world that is so full of strife and conflict and division, I pray this morning that what we find is love and truth. I pray that what we find this morning is clarity, the kind of compassion that follows in the footsteps of Jesus Christ himself, and the kind of courage that you have called us to as your followers. So Father, we rely on you this morning. We turn our hearts and minds and eyes towards you today, asking your grace upon all that we do. In your magnificent name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read a few verses, but the creation of humanity and a couple of these thoughts in these verses, much of which is probably familiar to us, will become touch points through, uh, through the rest of our talk this morning. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, Scripture says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We will at one point come back specifically to the notion of being created in the image of God, but all of this connects us as creatures made by God into the image and the plan and the work of God. We are not creatures who have sprung randomly from some sort of process or sprung randomly from the earth, but who have been created in the image of God, male and female, to fill the earth and to subdue it and to to be stewards over it. So when we talk about our design in in the character, nature, and image of God, we return to these concepts from time to time this morning. The big idea is of what I want to make sure that we're able to communicate today. And I have a lot of information for you guys. If you're interested in some of these notes and so on and so forth later on, uh, email us at the office and we'll try to get some of these things to you as well. But I want to make sure that through all of this we communicate a few things. First is this. When we talk about the matter of human sexuality, we mean this. Where God's design for human sexuality is lived, it is a moral advance for men, women, children, and society. Hang on to that idea. It is a moral advance because I want to talk about that for a minute or two. But where God's design is lived, it's a moral advance for everybody. It turns out that the church has every good reason to hold to and to lovingly promote God's design. And it's at a point like this where followers of Jesus Christ and the church itself feels all kinds of different cultural pressures to change the way that maybe we think about certain things or maybe stop communicating things in a certain way. But we're going to discover through several different lines of argument, as a matter of fact, that the church has every reason to lovingly promote God's design. And we do this in love. We're enjoined by the apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians to speak the truth in love. It's really important that we communicate this, this morning, that everything we go through today is not intended to create more division and strife or even hatred toward other people. It is designed for us to find clarity. Like the next point says, clarity, compassion, and courage on what is sometimes a very sensitive issue. So we walk out into this world with the love of Christ and with the mind of God about these things, right? So that kind of perspective is important for us as we keep moving this morning. What I mean by a moral advance, all right? And here's where Phil, the uh, philosophy professor, comes out just a little bit. If you don't like philosophy professors, you're going to be really frustrated by this morning. So, A moral standard. Here's what I mean by that. It's a standard because it imposes itself from the outside, and it is thus rigid and unbending. I am not talking about moral standards that come from within me. I decide what is moral or right or good. A moral standard is something that exists apart from me and apart from a cultural set of trends and thus it imposes itself upon humans from the outside. No matter what I believe about what is moral or right or good, that standard does not change. Now someone who deals with that notion really well It's C.S. Lewis in just the first few chapters of his book, Mere Christianity, if you kind of want to dig into that notion, that we are all of us beholden to a moral standard that really belongs to God. And when we say something is moral, in essence what we mean is that we call it moral because it is inherently good. That's just what we mean by something is moral. It is itself good, and it is good for us to behave in those kinds of ways. So it is a moral advance, and it's an advance because it moves people in the direction of what is right and good, what is the design of God. That's an important concept because of so much of what passes for progression, progressivism, moral progressivism in our culture has actually unhinged itself deliberately from an external objective moral reality. And as a result, what it has done is it has internalized all moral standards. Now, when you get rid of a moral standard outside of yourself, you literally cannot progress. You're not making an advance anywhere. It's change, not moral progression. So the only way to progress, to move forward, is to have a a goal toward which we are headed. So as followers of Jesus Christ, We recognize that that moral standard is rooted in the character and the nature, in the revealed will of God inside of the lives of His people. So when we learn how to lovingly promote God's design, we are walking in the direction of a moral advance for all of us, okay? That's important. Here's our plan this morning. I've got four basic segments to this talk. I was at a a conference a few years ago and one of the main speakers stood up and the first thing he said is, um, I'm going to walk through my 26 points this morning. So be thankful that we've got four instead of 26. We're going to touch briefly on the problem. I I think we have a sense of the problem, but I want to maybe open our eyes to a couple of details regarding the problem as it faces us in culture. We're gonna respond a little bit with scripture and with the lives of the early church, Old and then New Testament. And then what science and reason tell us. We're going to actually take a look at data that's being collected and we're gonna think through this moral argument that we've been building so far and then finally the, the biblical and the ethical case from a Christian point of view. The problem is we face it and here we could just sort of get grumpy for a very long time and I don't want to do that, but I do want to touch on a handful of things to make sure that we see some of the issues around us clearly. We know that questions about human sexuality and gender identity and sexual behavior are squarely in the middle of the public square. Right, talked about constantly in every context these issues are brought up, whether or not they are related to the context or not. It's just in the public square. How much of it is inside of our educational system? How much of it is inside of our media and social media? Uh, those of us who are of a, uh, of a certain age <laughs> and beyond, we need to recognize that the younger someone is, the more likely they are to receive their information about the world and their worldview and their set of moral standards from social media and not from parents, adult friends, and church. So what's going on out there? What's popular? What's important? What's being communicated out there to all of us as well as to the rest of our families? We know the story just a little bit of Caitlyn Jenner You've got that photograph there. Now, something interesting with with Caitlyn Jenner, and I'm gonna hit a couple of side notes here from time to time, when Bruce Jenner went through the process of becoming Caitlyn Jenner, it was celebrated inside of the media in all kinds of different ways. Now, if you go back and you take a look at some of his early photo shoots, you'll notice something really interesting. His early photo shoots do one of two things. He's either photographed with his hands behind his back or his hands are not in the photo. Now, why would that be the case? A transgender operation literally does not change you from male to female or female to male. It cannot change the chromosomes of your body. It changes some physical facts about you and the hormonal therapy also changes some physical facts about you. But after his surgery and his hormone therapy, he still had man hands. And you can still see that a little bit in this picture a little bit later on. He still looks like he has man hands, right? So we're being very careful about how to present this as it moves forward. I am Jazz. How many of you have heard of this TV show? It just got renewed for its fourth season. It's the reality TV show of a boy who's living as a transgendered girl. It just got renewed and it's a popular TV show on TLC. The TSCR, Trans Student Educational Resources. This is one of a handful of organizations who exist for the sole purpose of building student-friendly resources to encourage different expression of sexuality or a range of expression of sexuality. And we're gonna run into the TSER here in a couple of minutes. Our culture likes to talk about new and different ways of actually putting people together. We talk about couples two individuals who are committed to each other specifically inside of marriage. And more and more, we get this really unfortunate vocabulary that's making its way into our culture. And one of those words is thruple. Okay, thruple, everyone say thruple. It's a horrible word, isn't it? Not two people committed to each other, but three people committed to each other. This, this is not some crazy news source. This is the UK version of the Huffington Post that you see about two and a half years ago. New ways of putting people together. More and more people inside of this world are talking less about wedlock and instead talking about wed lease. Instead of locking yourselves together as a permanent commitment, we're going to agree to be put together in some form or fashion for. Just a period of time. And then when the lease is up, our wed lease is up as well. So we have inside of this system these new ways of putting people together um, from beginning to end. Now, this is an educational resource that was out there for a while called the Gingerbread Person. Now, you'll notice the bright colors, the cartoon-like characters. This is intended um, for elementary-aged kids. And as you read through this, what this does is it, is it helps those kids, or it's intended to teach those kids that you have this entire spectrum of expression in your sexuality, how you identify in your gender, what your gender expression is, what your biological sex is, and notice that they even treat that as a continuum, who you're sexually attracted to, who you're romantically attracted to. And you can grab any point along any one of these lines and find yourself in all kinds of different places. Not very long after this became popular, it was deemed too heteronormative. It was deemed too masculine because after all, we all know it's the gingerbread man. So what the TSER did is they came up with the gender unicorn. Notice again how this is put together and to whom this is intended to be um, attractive. So again, we find things like gender identity and gender expression, physically attracted to, emotionally attracted to, and you've got all sets of different options that you can choose from. Notice something else in the middle of that slide sex assigned at birth. Oftentimes, massive shifts in cultural morality don't always happen. With a full on frontal assault. They often happen in very subtle ways. And many of those subtle ways are just to the way vocabulary is used. Nobody but God assigns sex at birth. Now, what's meant by this is that a doctor or a parent or a guardian can choose which box to check, right? because we're going to assign birth as opposed to recognizing the gender that has been given to that child by their X and Y or their set of chromosomes. So the gender unicorn is something that's actually used in public school systems today. Now, when we start thinking about what it means to respond, to think this through and deal with this as Christians, first of all, I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton. You can just take that one home and that's a good one. So we need to ask questions about what does Scripture affirm about human sexuality? What does, the, what does Scripture actually say? And then I think it's important for us to also ask, is that viewpoint backed up in other ways? or Are we sort of left with a handful of verses of Scripture and that's it? Or does our human experience, do research and science back up the biblical point of view on human sexuality? So let's talk about, first of all, the biblical pattern. Let's talk about the Old Testament pattern. Now, when you spend time inside of Old Testament scripture and you begin to pay attention to the laws regarding the way men and women are put together, the way children are treated, um, uh, polygamy and rape and so on and so forth, there are actually a lot of laws in the Old Testament that have to do with the practice of human sexuality. But oftentimes, they feel a little bit strange and foreign to us. And so this is a lens that helps us to understand what the Old Testament is doing. Now we read in Genesis chapter one the story of the design. Male and female he created them in his image and in his likeness to do this, to do this, to do this. God created us with his design for certain functions and for certain purposes and reasons. Now the problem is We do dumb things. We are broken in our sin and at the fall of Adam and Eve and ever since then, human beings live in sin so we break that design. So as God gives us law in the Old Testament regarding human sexuality, it is inside of this context of this tension and the tension is God wants his people to live according to his design. But we have sinned and we do not. So this is where we actually live. So now what God has to do is he has to design laws that fix what we've done in our sin and draw us closer and closer to his design. So even in Old Testament laws, though sometimes they seem odd to us, we're reading moral advance. Does that make sense? Are you guys still with me? Sort of. All right, it's too bad we're moving on. A sampling from Deuteronomy, okay? Some specific passages of scripture. Um, I'm giving you these if you wanna write them down. You can read them a little bit later on. But for instance, Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 through 17 is a rule about how to handle a polygamous relationship. So in a polygamous relationship, the husband husband cannot treat the son of the unloved wife differently than the son of the loved wife, thus protecting the inheritance of the son and the financial protection for the unloved wife. Polygamy is not God's design, but God's people fell into sin. They're living in this polygamous relationships. You've got all these complications that result from that. So what does God do? He hands them laws to protect others from the consequences of their sin. Now again, this is one of those laws that we read it And we think, well, that's literally foreign to us. That's not the world in which we live. Until you get to throuples. Until you get now to a point in time where it's becoming more and more common in the public square to talk about more than two people being married and having children. Are we back in some ways to where we were thousands of years ago in our sin? Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 is a fun one. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. The first half of that verse says this Women should not wear men's clothes, and men should not wear women's clothes. The second half of that verse says, If they do, it is an abomination to the Lord. Sometimes that text has been taken to mean women can't wear pants. That's not what that text means. What that text is talking about is what was a common Canaanite occultic practice where men and women who were temple prostitutes would blur the lines in the way that they dressed and the way that they behaved between male and female. And it was all wrapped up inside of cultural, or excuse me, occultic prostitution in the Canaanite world. And God tells his people, you're not going to do that. Okay, so we've got a context. We've got God pulling his people back toward his design. Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 22. A sexual relationship is not a casual thing, and the women's social protection is upheld. That's only one of several passages like this in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 25. A scorned woman has the legal right to shame a man. Now, the very fact that inside of this world and culture, you're talking about a legal right for a female, immediately that's a moral advance inside of God's law. She's scorned. She actually has the right to go before the tribal elders and shame a man and receive property from him. In Deuteronomy 27 and in other places, we have curses placed on breaking sexual boundaries. This tension of God's design and our sin And God has to deal with our sin to pull his people back toward his original design. So now I want to talk a little bit about the New Testament and the early church. So in the New Testament's injunctions regarding eldership and widows and marriage and self-control, what we begin to see, in fact, what we comprehend is the background upon which those directions were given, Just about every epistle in the New Testament is going to contain some kind of list of directives about this is how Christians ought to behave and ought not to behave. This is how um, husbands and wives should and should not live with each other. This is how parents should and should not treat their children. It's not just that the Apostle Paul is giving us a bunch of rules. The Apostle Paul and Peter and John and the writer of Hebrews is actually trying to pull people out of the world in which they live and draw them closer to the design that God has given them. Two of the clearest examples of that come out of the book of Titus. I'm gonna read just one of those sections in Titus chapter one, beginning in verse five, a few of those verses. Now, we have qualifications for elders, but what we're reading is the life that they were saved out of. Does that make sense? This is why I left you in Crete, Paul says to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, which was common in their culture. For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, which is a word that's repeated half a dozen times in the book of Titus, self-controlled, excuse me, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a description of how they used to live. But now that they follow Jesus Christ, there's a different standard. And so much of it has to do with and you read the rest of chapter two and you'll get instructions to husbands and wives. Here's how I need you to behave with each other because in your former life, you behaved in a very different fashion. So guys, the Christian ethic as we read it in scripture, as we watch it lived out in the early church, it harkens back to God's created order and it changed the Roman world And it gives us the set of assumptions that the West has worked on for a very long time. Any kind of notion that you and I have, ourselves or inside of our culture, about the way a a stable marriage, we would want a stable marriage between husband and wife to actually work, or the way for kids to be raised and the kind of protections and environment that that can possibly create was not the Roman ethic. The Roman ethic was completely different from that. There were few to no legal or cultural restrictions upon men of any level of social or economic power in that world. Anybody except a woman who was married in an estate above you was free for you, sexually no consequences. It's often why men of power in Rome had so many slaves. That's the world the christian world rises in that the christian church begins to live in and the christian church outlived it the christian church changed the debauchery of the roman empire and gave us what we assume to be true about marriage and family and human sexuality and kids but is changing again okay The Christian ethic infused marriage and human sexuality with moral and divine meaning. This is the story in the New Testament when this is talked about between husband and wife and when this issue is talked about in the New Testament, it infuses it with moral and with divine meaning. The two become one flesh, turning the sexual act into an expression of mutual love and commitment and procreation instead of, again, what was common in their cultures, self-serving lust and physical gratification. So the New Testament, God's laws about his design and his faithful people begin to pull their lives back toward the design that God had for us in the first place. And so the love between husband and wife reflects the love and commitment between God and his people becoming a covenant between two people that mirrors God's covenant with us. This is the story of Ephesians chapter five. In everything that you read there, Paul eventually gets to the point where he says, now what we're really talking about is Christ and his church. When we talk about submission and sacrificial love, we're talking about a human covenant that reflects the divine covenant. And you see, it is our faith, it is our scriptures, it is our God who has infused this part of human life with morality and with divine meaning. When we talk about the value that this has for children and for women in their world, children now, as inside of Christian homes in the early church, they're raised in this atmosphere, creating the best conditions for their physical, emotional, and spiritual health. If you track this matter down, and some of the resources that I have given you, these books deal with this kind of issue. But the data on what is most healthy for children has to do with um, a home with a mother and a father, right? This is the most healthy thing for a child. In one of the books that I read a few while uh, just a, a couple of years ago, um, one of the primary social scientists leading today who deals with this issue, he just simply said this, This fact is the most established piece of sociological data in the 20th century, okay? And it's given to us by God and by the lives of the Christian church. So it's good for kids. This then, combined with the doctrine of the image of God, the imago dei, created an atmosphere where women went from non-citizens to subhuman and subhuman to full members of family, religious life, and eventually early Christian society, the historian and sociologist Rodney Stark, he writes this in one of his books. Women were especially drawn to Christianity because it offered them a life that was so greatly superior to the life they otherwise would have led. So the early Christian church actually fills up with these examples of powerful, dynamic women who follow Jesus Christ in powerful ways because of what Christ is doing for them in this brand new way of life. And one of the distinctive markers of Christian religion as compared to Roman religion was the belief that Christians were morally obligated to their God. Okay, now, here's what we mean by that. In the Greco-Roman world and in a lot of pagan systems, if you were raised in that system, your relationship to Diana or to Zeus or to Pan wasn't necessarily a moral relationship of mutual love and covenant. It was a utilitarian relationship. So if I need my business to do well because it's failing, I'm going to take some money and some sacrifices to the temple of this particular God to get this God to do something for me. If my crops are on the edge of failing, I'm gonna take some sacrifices over to this temple to get this God to do something for me. It's very transactional. But the Christian faith changes the relationship between humans and God and makes it moral. This book, Destroyer of the Gods, by Larry Hurtado is his name, is a fascinating work on the differences that the Christians brought into the Roman world. And here's part of what he says about that. And he uses this word that we as Christians like to use a lot when we talk about Love. The Greek term that early Christians preferred, however, to depict their God's love and the love that they were to show as well as for God and others, even their enemies, was agape, in its cognate verb agapeo, emphasizing a moral commitment to the one loved. These terms also had the effect of marking off early Christian discourse about their God from pagan discourse about other deities of the time. So a theme, if you haven't picked it up yet, that we're going to hear is that Christians were just different. And we were different because we had the design of God revealed to us, and we were obedient to, trying to be obedient to the design of God. And this happens, and I think this is important for us to hear. The Christian view taught in the New Testament and lived out in the early church was radically different. And because of its moral advantages, It raised the lives of those who followed the standard. Eventually, the Christian view outlived the Roman Empire and its debauchery. Why is that important for us to hear today? I believe our culture is choosing Roman debauchery all over again, and it's producing profound harm in the lives of people. I heard someone say it recently, and I think he's right, that one of the refugee crises that the church needs to prepare itself for are refugees from the sexual revolution. The pain and brokenness that's gonna come out of that because it breaks the design of God, and thus it breaks the image of God within us, and sometimes it physically and emotionally breaks us as well. So into that comes the faithful. Loving, courageous church of Jesus Christ. Okay? (laughs) I believe that to one degree or another, we're back in this place. Let's think a little bit about the science of the matter and some of the data. Science Science and reason teach us. Let's think through this a little bit. Essentially, what I'm giving you this morning is, is a biblical argument about the, uh, uh, the view of God and human sexuality, a moral argument, and then we're even gonna touch on some of the scientific argument as well. And here's some of the moral. Oftentimes the argument that is made in favor of the broadening of human sexuality is something like this. If we want to be compassionate and we want them to do better, what we should do is we should let people pursue a change of identity, maybe even provide a path for them to pursue a change, and we should always support them in their change of identity. And if we do that, they will feel better than otherwise. Now, oftentimes people, and guys, this is, this is not a matter of criticism, this is just a matter of reality. Oftentimes people who have genuine struggles with their sexual identity or suffer from gender dysphoria, this is a very real thing. And we can't dismiss that. But as Christians, we need to think about it with love and compassion. So often the moral argument is something like this. What is moral, meaning what is good and right, is a matter of what I want. It's a matter of what I desire. It's a matter of what I feel. But one of the things that we learn about morality is this. When we choose what is moral, the human being does well. The human being flourishes. If we violate the moral choice, We find human breakdown and struggle, and sometimes in pretty severe fashions. If we break a very simple little moral code, there's gonna be a simple little reaction to that. If we break a significant moral code, there's gonna be a significant dysfunction and breakdown as a result of that. Let's talk specifically about transgenderism. Let me talk about this quickly, and then we're gonna watch a video, and I'll make sure that you see some of these slides. So here's some of the data. Here are the stats, and this is one of the the slides that you guys have in your notes. Post-operative transsexuals report lower satisfaction with their general quality of health and with some of the new physical limitations placed on them because of the surgery. So they don't feel better after surgery than they do before. The rates of psychiatric hospitalization for post-operative transsexuals was about three times the rate of the control group. The risk of mortality from all causes is significantly higher. The rate of, this was interesting to me, criminal conviction was significantly higher. Suicide attempts were nearly five times higher, and the likelihood of death from suicide was 19 times higher than in the rest of the population. Are we doing well? Are we flourishing? Are we making the moral choice? Or is there another set of choices that we can possibly make? We're gonna watch about a five minute video and it's, it's, a, it's a pediatrician talking about this issue in just very straightforward terms, but it's some very good information. If we can guys, let's go ahead and watch that video.
1: Congratulations, it's a boy. Or congratulations, it's a girl. As a pediatrician for nearly 20 years, that's how many of my patient relationships began. Our bodies to clear our sex. Biological sex is not assigned. Is determined at conception by our DNA stamped into every cell of our bodies. Human sexuality is binary. Either you have a normal Y chromosome and develop into a male, or you don't and you will develop into a female. There are at least 6,500 genetic differences between men and women. Hormones and surgery cannot and do not change this. Look, an identity is not biological, it is psychological. Identity has to do with thinking and feeling. Thoughts and feelings are not biologically hardwired. Our thinking and feeling may be factually right or factually wrong. For example, if I walk into my doctor's office today and say, hi, I'm Margaret Thatcher, my physician will say I am delusional and give me an antipsychotic. However, if instead I walked in and said, I am a man, he would say congratulations you're transgender if i were to say doctor i am suicidal i'm an amputee trapped in a normal body please surgically remove my leg i'll be diagnosed with body identity integrity disorder but if i walk up to that same doctor and say i'm a man sign me up for a double mastectomy my physician will See, according to most mainstream medical organizations, if you want to cut off a healthy arm or a healthy leg, you're mentally ill. But if you want to cut off healthy breasts or a penis, you're transgender. Let's be clear, no one is born transgender. If gender identity were hardwired in the brain before birth, identical twins would have the same gender identity 100% of the time. They don't. I had one little boy, a patient we'll call Andy. Between the ages of three and five, he increasingly played with girls and stereotypical girl toys and started saying he was a girl. I referred the parents and Andy to a therapist. Sometimes mental illness of a parent or abuse of the child are factors. But more commonly, the child has misperceived family dynamics and internalized a false belief. In the middle of one session, Andy put down the toy truck and held onto the Barbie and said, Mommy and Daddy, you don't love me when I'm a boy. What the therapist learned is that when Andy was three, his sister with special needs was born. She required significantly more of his parents' care and attention. Andy misperceived this as Mommy and Daddy love girls. If I want them to love me again, I have to be a girl. With family therapy, Andy got better. Today Andy's parents would be told something quite different. They would hear, this is who Andy really is. You must change his name, ensure that everyone treats him as a girl or else he will commit suicide. As Andy would approach puberty, the experts would put him on puberty blockers so that he could continue to impersonate a girl. Experts assure us it doesn't matter that we've never tested puberty blockers in biologically normal children. It doesn't matter that when blockers are used to treat prostate cancer in men and gynecologic problems in women that they cause problems with memory. We don't need testing. No, we need to arrest his physical development now or he'll commit suicide. But this is not true. Instead, when supported in their biological sex through natural puberty, the vast majority of gender confused children get better. Yet, we are chemically castrating gender confused children with puberty blockers. Then, we permanently sterilize many of them by adding cross-sex hormones. Cross-sex hormones are estrogen and testosterone. Those put young children at risk for heart disease, strokes, diabetes, cancers, and even the very emotional problems that experts claim to be preventing. P.S. If a girl who insists she is a man has been on testosterone daily for one year, she's cleared to get a bilateral mastectomy at age 16. Now mind you, the American Academy of Pediatrics recently came out with a report that urges pediatricians to caution teenagers about getting tattoos because tattoos are essentially permanent and can cause scarring. But this same AAP is 110% in support of 16-year-old girls getting a double mastectomy, even without parental consent, so long as the girl insists that she is a man and has been taking testosterone daily for one year. Let's be clear, to indoctrinate all children from preschool forward with the lie that they could be trapped in the wrong body disrupts the very foundation of a child's reality testing. If a child can't trust the reality of their physical bodies, who or what can they trust? Transgender ideology in schools is psychological abuse that often leads to chemical castration, sterilization, and surgical mutilation. If that's not child abuse, ladies and gentlemen, what is?
0: God has a design. The design is good, and we as the church walk into this world with the love and the wisdom and the truth of God, right? As opposed to what we see so often going on around us. So let's, let's move on from that to the data regarding same-sex marriage. There are several European countries and other countries as well who have legalized and supported same-sex marriage um, for many years now. So we actually are collecting a lot of data on the children who have been raised inside of same-sex marriages. And here's again what the data tells us. Studies that control for other factors, including poverty and even genetics, suggest that children reared in intact homes, and the context there is, is male and female parents, Do best in measurements of educational achievement, emotional health, familial and sexual development and delinquency and incarceration. Depression rates among young adult children of same-sex marriage adults are at 51% as compared to 20% for children of uh, traditional marriage. Obesity rates at 72% as opposed to 31%. If you can't read this, again, this is some of the data that we gave you and produced for you in the notes Uh, The darker color there are the rates of children from same-sex marriages. The lighter color are children turning into adults, adolescents out of traditional marriage. Depressed as an adolescent is similar. Depressed as an adult is radically different. Suicide ideation, um, serious inclinations toward committing suicide as an adolescent, higher amongst these children. Suicide ideation as an adult, higher among these distant from parents as an adolescent, again, much higher, and on and on the story goes. We're actually collecting data. Are we making the moral choice? Are we doing the right thing for the rest of our culture by saying that this is morally good? Well, the data says we're not. The biblical argument says we're not. The moral argument says we're not. The data says we are not as well. So guys, when we talk about a moral advance, in the role of the church in our culture, it is, no matter what we are told, okay, it is a compassionate act of love. So we can look at it like this. What I desire to do is not always the good thing to do. Parents, have you ever told your child that? <laughs> you want to do it, but it's not the right thing. What I desire it's not the same thing as what is moral. So sometimes to love someone, well, sometimes is the third point. This is what I mean here. To love someone is to desire their good. That's just a good understanding of what it means to love someone, to desire their good, to work for their good, to sometimes even sacrifice for their good. So what this means is that I may sometimes act against their, their, their desires, but in accordance with Christian love. Does that make sense? It's a really straightforward argument So what that means for us is that the faithful Christian church will strive to find ways to love and to show compassion in truth. Not with hate, not with anger, not with more division and strife, but to find ways to do it in compassion and love. To talk about God's design for us sexually and in families is a compassionate act of love. Let's talk again about the image of God and the way that he designed us, male and female, he created them in the image of God. Human beings are not just souls. There's a fairly popular belief out there that what a human being is is a ghost in a machine, that we're just some sort of a soulish thing inside of a fleshly thing. The fleshly thing will eventually disappear because it is unimportant. We're not just that. We're not just the compilation of our desires, of our feelings, or our emotions. We're also not just input and output machines. There are people out there who make the serious argument that human beings are nothing but flesh computers. There's nothing spiritual or moral about us. We're just input-output devices. We're not silicone. We're made of organic material. That's the only difference. Instead of all that, what we are, is created in the image of God, is we are in souled bodies. We are this fascinating combination of the physical and the immaterial, the non-physical. We are in souled bodies, and every piece of this, from what we cannot see to what we can see, is important in our relationship with God. We're actually told by Jesus Christ to love God with our heart and our soul and our mind, those things we can't see, so to speak, and with our strength, with our bodies, We're to offer, Paul says, our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Even if I'm frustrated about how I feel about this thing or confused about how I feel about this thing, where we should be headed is how can I place this thing on the altar because it belongs to God and not to me. That's a radical thought in our culture. But nonetheless, I believe it is biblical So feelings versus our bodies, and this encapsulates a couple of things mentioned inside of that video. Again, a common argument, what I feel about my own gender or sexual identity is at odds with my physical makeup, my physical gender. Therefore, I should be allowed to change my physical makeup. And we find by now at least two problems with that. These feelings and these desires change. Given time, most people who are confused by this are able to actually move out of it through one form or another. And then also we've discovered that defining morality in terms of feelings or emotions is a very unstable place to ground morality. Feelings change. Emotions change. They don't determine what is right for me, what is good for me. They're connected to it, but they don't determine what is right or good for me. So I want to talk for a minute about this 50-cent word, teleology. Everybody say teleology. So the Christian ethic and teleology. Now, it's a 50-cent word, but it's really very straightforward. What it means is when we talk about the teleology of a thing, we're talking about the designed purpose of a thing. The reason for which that thing was constructed. Okay? Telos in the Greek means the end or the goal or the reason for something. Ology is the study of that, the study of the reason or the end of something. The Christian ethic, when we go through scripture from Genesis to Titus to everything else, the Christian ethic takes how we were created as a signal of God's purpose and of ethical behavior. We were designed to behave in certain ways that honor God and honor our neighbor. Does that make sense? There is a teleology to the way God made us, the story that we read in Genesis chapter one. So teleology is just a way of talking about the design purpose of a thing. So we can talk about the teleology of a parachute. If you have reason to jump out of an aircraft, a parachute is designed so that you can land safely. If you decide to build a bookshelf, a hammer is designed to help you build that bookshelf. So we can talk about the teleology of a parachute, what it's designed for and how it works best, and the teleology of a hammer. Now, if we change the uses of these things, some of the consequences are ridiculous and some of them are deadly. If we use a parachute to build a bookshelf, it's ridiculous, right? If we use a hammer to jump out of a plane, steadily. because it wasn't designed for that. It wasn't designed to do that. You and I are designed by God to work in certain ways. And the misuse of that design can sometimes turn deadly. One of the books on your list of resources there. It's by Nancy Piercy who writes really well about Christian worldview issues. And it's one of three or four books on that list that I think is a great place to begin if you really want to dig into this issue. And she says this about a Christian ethic and this notion of why we are designed the way we are. Biblical morality affirms the high value of creation. It's important to us. In a teleological view, nature is not undifferentiated raw material with no positive character of its own. It exhibits a plan, a design, an order, and a purpose. Because of that, it, or our design, gives rational grounds for our moral decisions— Our sexual identity is meant to be in harmony with our physiological identity. So the goal is not to change these things and take them even further apart and do harm to ourselves. The goal is to overcome whatever self-alienation we may feel and recover a sense of inner coherence. That's a mouthful, for we're designed by God to live this way, and if that grows frustrating or confusing for us, the goal is to put that back together that we can live in a way that honors God and ourselves and our neighbor as well. So here's the bottom line with this kind of biblical notion of, of, uh, of an ethic for human sexuality. Our bodies bear moral meaning. So men and women are created for each other, soul and body. It's not f- just physical, it's psychological. It's soulish. It's spiritual as well. God created men and women, soul and body for each other. And God created it so that children flourish in the context of his design. So the Christian believes that our nature is given to us by God. So those natural bodies are good, morally good, and even good for our flourishing. None of this has been about hatred toward people who don't believe this. All of this has been about a God of love and wisdom has created us this way. Design, in sin and pulling us back toward the goodness of God's design. The importance of a faithful church. Churches and Christians are part of the sphere of influence in a culture that reinforces moral objectivity, how God designed us to work sexually and in family units. This is important for us. The church is not a social activity that just happens once or twice a week and has no bearing on the rest of our lives. The church is a necessary institution inside of our culture that carries objective morality into our culture. Some of you are aware of the kerfuffle that's been raised over the last few days when the second lady, Karen Pence, had the gall To take on a part time job at an evangelical school that had a doctrinal statement affirming biblical uh, sexuality, traditional view on human sexuality. And immediately the response was massive and it was cruel and it was small minded and it was bigoted. How dare she go to a school that hates gays? None of that's true. But what it reveals is a culture that wants to tell the church increasingly, you don't belong outdoors. You belong indoors. Keep your faith to yourself. Don't try to get other people to see it or listen to it. Into that world, the church is a necessary institution that bears the kingdom of God. Especially in our culture right now, when it comes to human sexuality and what the family looks like, into a world where things are breaking down in a lot of ways. So we see that it is both rational and compassionate for us to hold to the biblical view of marriage, of family, and of human sexuality. We're not making this up. We're not angry. We're not full of hate. It's rational and it's compassionate. Pope Paul, in a really interesting encyclical in 1968, an encyclical that had to do with uh, marriage and family. He writes this, and it's good for us to hear this, to tell the truth, it does not surprise the church that she becomes, like her divine founder, a sign of contradiction. Yet she does not, because of this, cease to proclaim with humble firmness the entire moral law, both the natural law and the law of the gospel. When our message is contradicted in the world around us, it doesn't mean stop talking, church. It means find a way to do it with love and wisdom and compassion and courage. We continue to talk. We continue to talk about God's law. We continue to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're made in the image of God. God makes us male and female in his image. And you and I are tasked with tending to, being stewards over, and filling the earth. And it's not just the physical earth, but the culture around us. We're intended to tend to it as well as much as we can. So guys, supporting this vision of humanity with wisdom and love, it supports the will of God in our creation, and it supports the health of God's creatures. May the church of Jesus Christ find loving, courageous, clear, in compassionate ways, to talk about the truth of Jesus Christ into a world that in so many ways is falling apart around us. Let's pray.